the understanding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Our Father, we praise you that this unfolding of your word brings light to our darkness and wisdom to our ignorance. And we come to you as those who, without your light, remain in the dark and remain clueless about you. And so we ask that you would graciously shine the light of your word into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please do sit, and please turn to Revelation chapter 14. It's in the last book of the Bible. I've absolutely no idea what page it's on. But it'll be towards the end. And our subject this morning is patient endurance in the Christian faith. And you can see that from chapter 14, verse 12, where the author very helpfully tells us how we should respond to what he is about to show us. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The word there for endurance speaks of abiding under, bearing up courageously under suffering. And so the issue we're considering this morning is that of Christian men and women enduring patiently as Christians in faith and Christian work. And my aim is a very simple one. I think it is the aim of the writer of this book. It is that we endure to the end as Christians. The bulk of the book of Revelation, as you will have seen, I'm sure, over the last few weeks, I'm told you've been studying Revelation. Is that right? I I think that's right. Yes, I'm so glad. So over the last weeks, you will have seen that the bulk of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to the end is designed to drive the application that is identified in the first three chapters of the book. So the book of Revelation is most unusual. It gives us the application up front in the seven letters to the churches. And the idea of patient endurance is a repeated theme in the letter to the seven churches. The church of Ephesus is told to endure... The church of Smyrna is told to endure. The church of Pergamum is told to endure. The church of Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, they are all told to endure to the one who conquers will be given the crown of life. So there is the application of the book of Revelation. It's all up front. There are no surprises after the first three chapters in terms of application. The whole of the rest of the book is designed to drive application. And when one reads and rereads, which I hope you're doing each week, rereading the letter to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, we identify three or four basic themes of application. Patient endurance is sought in the face of false teaching in the church. You've come across false teaching in the Christian church across the world, endure patiently. 
and patient endurance is sought in the face of immorality and the acceptance of ungodliness in the church. You witness ungodliness encouraged in the church as we do in the West at the moment, in the main denominations, and the application is to endure patiently. And patient endurance is sought in the face of hostile and aggressive anti-Christian propaganda and persecution. You look at ISIL and the beheading of Christians. You look at aggressive anti-Christian activity at the Muslim-Christian interface. You look at the constant belittling of Christians by Western secularists. Endure patiently. And patient endurance is sought in the face of the constant temptation of Christians simply to nod off, to go to sleep. False teaching is so wearisome, isn't it? I find it so wearisome when people insist on thinking arrogantly they know better than God. It's so boring. Sexual immorality and its acceptance in the church is so wicked. When you have Christian leaders, the dean of the cathedral and his staff in the diocese in which I work, encouraging rank immorality. It's so wicked. And the perennial putting down of Christians, of true Bible Christians, it's it's so patronizing. Somebody said to me of my sister who is married to a vicar recently, she seems far too intelligent and competent to be a vicar's wife. So patronizing, particularly coming from the individual concerned. And isn't it so tempting simply to fall asleep, to nod off in your armchair as a Christian? And the chapters 4 through to 21 of the book of Revelation are designed to give us a short, sharp shock that we endure patiently in in the face of these four areas of pressure. And the the incentive for patient endurance given by today's vision is, I think, one of the least likely that you or I would ever in a million years choose to give, which is what makes it so interesting, so vital. It has struck me, as I've thought about this, how greatly we might be in danger of not thinking the way God thinks and thus not being encouraged the way God wants to encourage us. For the incentive to endure... In Revelation 14.6 to 15.4 is judgment. And so I have been flown, what is it, 7,000 miles in order to remind you that God will judge. There are three sections chapter 14, verse 6, through to chapter 14, verse 13. The judgment of God is announced, don't give up. And then chapter 14, verse 14, to verse 20, the judgment of God will be executed, don't give up. 
And then chapter 15, verses 1 to 4, the judgment of God is to be celebrated. Don't give up. Announcement, verses 6 to 13. We find three angels, the first of six in verses 6 to 13, and the first angel sets the tone as he shows us both the scope and the timing of God's judgment. He flies directly overhead. Do you see in verse 6? As he flies, so he speaks, and he is engaged in the proclamation of an eternal gospel. Gospel simply means announcement. That's all it is. It's an announcement. It's a news word. And the angel comes to herald news from God that is for all of the globe. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. God's news desk then is not divided into sections, regional, national, global, local, sport, political, cultural, financial. God's news desk, why, it is global, it is universal, it is eternal, it is multilingual, it is cross-cultural. God has a message for all the world, and it seems rather ironic and fitting to me that I have been flown 7,000 miles from a completely different culture to tell you God's message for the whole globe. What is this news that God has for everybody? Well, it's there in verse 7. The angel said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Here then is a message for all the earth. The hour of God's judgment is upon us. I mentioned that our church is in the heart of the financial district in London. It means I often have to uh, attend functions uh, as part of the role as vicar and meet people who I wouldn't normally meet. And I remember sitting opposite somebody about 10 years ago now who was a very senior executive in Barclays Bank. I don't know if you've ever come across Barclays Bank, but anyway, it's big in London. And we were chatting about this and that and he asked me what I did and I said well I teach the Bible and I remind people that God is going to judge the world one day (laughs) and this senior executive in Barclays Bank said oh well I don't really believe in judgment and I said whatever made you think that your opinion matters (laughs) in these affairs notice the emphasis on God the creator Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Can you picture anything in all creation that is not contained in the set, heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water? Is anything left out? In other words, because he is the creator of all, therefore he has the right to judge all. The fruit of a neglect of the doctrine of creation 
will be a failure to appreciate the rightness of judgment. Because God is creator of all things, all people, all nations, all tribes, so God's judgment of all peoples, all nations, all cultures, all tribes is a given. I made it, I own it, I'm lord over it, I will judge it. It's only as we neglect Genesis 1 and 2, as this senior executive in Barclays clearly had done, that we are offended by the doctrine of Revelation 14 and 15. For God the creator has the right to judge what he has made, of course. And therefore here is the eternal gospel. Notice it's the eternal gospel. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So then the Christian gospel is not primarily about me and my happiness. I don't know if you knew that. Or me and my self-esteem and self-worth or me and my emotional state. Oh, it will affect all these things, but that is not primarily what the Christian gospel is about. The Christian gospel is primarily about God and his judgment and God and his salvation. If I'd had room in my luggage, I would have brought with me a book by one of the best theologians of the 20th century, a gentleman named Broughton Knox. And in it, he makes his point in the book, The Everlasting God, that the New Testament has as its primary focus again and again and again and again the judgment of God and therefore the salvation of God. And as one takes one's eyes off these things, then one's gospel becomes primarily concerned with things social or financial or personal self-esteem. But when one understands the Christian gospel then one has a gospel emphasis on salvation and judgment. I remember very early in my time as rector of the church that I'm rector of at the moment, I was visited by one of the primary authors of one of the most popular evangelistic uh, courses in London and the world. And he wanted to persuade me that St. Helens should take on board this evangelistic course. And I said to him that I wasn't persuaded by his course because, among other things, his course didn't really teach the doctrine of God's judgment adequately. And therefore, it didn't emphasize the doctrine of the cross and of salvation properly. Oh, he said... I would never talk about the judgment of God to a non-Christian. It might put them off. Oh, I said, then you've never taught them the gospel. If the first angel announces the scope and timing of God's judgment, the second angel in verse 8 introduces the object of God's judgment and the reason for it. Notice the past tense in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion 
of her sexual immorality. Though this has not yet taken place, in this vision of the future, it is seen as a fait accompli. It certainly will take place, and therefore it is put in the past tense. The creed of Babylon is idolatry, inventing God in my own image, denying the existence of God. Babel, you will remember, was the great tower built by man to reach to the skies, a monument to human arrogance. And Babylon was where Nebuchadnezzar strutted his stuff. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. That's quite a claim, isn't it? I believe there is no God. We believe man is free. We believe every man and woman should live as she or he feels fit. We believe in us. And because Babylon's creed was idolatrous so Babylon's culture was godless look at verse 8 fallen fallen is Babylon the great she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality for if there is no God there is no accountability no God no judgment no God no justice no God no accountability When I invent God in my own image, my God approves of my conduct. And so wherever you find human idolatry or a denial of God, there you will find human sin. Idolaters' faith, whether it is the idolatry of man-made religion or the idolatry of no religion, always ultimately bears godless fruit. For if I invent God in my own image, my God will give credence to my godless activity. And so the first angel announces the scope and timing of God's judgment, and the second angel announces the object and reason for God's judgment, God's judgment is coming because of man's human idolatry, whether it's a secularist denial of God, as we have in the West, or an idolater's invention of God, as you find in the East. God's judgment comes on humanity for human idolatry. And verse 9 with the third angel brings us to the nature and experience of God's judgment. You'll see in verse 9, the author speaks of receiving the mark of the beast, and that is anybody who has sided with Babylon is marked by Babylon. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, Verse 10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. 
What then is the nature of God's judgment? It is endless, conscious, irreversible torment. These verses call deeply into question those who suggest that God's judgment is simply an annihilation, such that those God judges ultimately will be obliterated and won't experience anything. Look again at verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And the judgment is overseen by God himself. It is the wine of God's wrath, verse 10. And the judgment is supervised by the angels of heaven, verse 10. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. And present at the judgment and throughout the eternal period of punishment is the lamb who died for the sins of the world. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And just because the language and the image of the beast and of the angels flying overhead and of the cups of wrath and of fire and of sulfur is so graphic, we ought not to consider that those who worship the beast are some sort of distant group miles away from anything that we would find here in KL or over there in London. Those who bear the mark of the beast are those who reject God or those who reinvent God. And such is God's affront that our willful rejection of him in his world that he considers endless, conscious, irreversible torment to be the punishment that fits the crime. Oh, says somebody, I couldn't possibly believe in a God who judges like this. Why not? Why not? That God should experience just indignation, does it surprise you? Are you not justly indignant when you see political corruption, aren't you? Or when you open the sports pages and you discover that Sepp Blatter and Mr. Platini have been squirreling away funds to pocket and feather their own nest, are you not justly indignant? Or when you discover that this or that senior figure has been engaged in such or other desperate wickedness in some form of abuse of vulnerable teenagers, do you not feel indignation? Ought not God then rightly to be indignant at our human reinvention of God or straight ignoring of God. Of course he ought. 
and so the atheist's creed evokes God's wrath and the secularist's conduct evokes God's wrath and the idolater's arrogance evokes God's wrath and Babylon's accomplices evoke God's wrath. God isn't simply sitting passively on the sidelines as the celebrity atheists of the West pen their latest bestseller And God is not simply sitting and smiling politely as the imam or the mufti or the sultan or whatever promotes their invention of God. It makes God angry. For us to strut through God's creation, assuming the position of God evokes his wrath. Here, then, is the eternal gospel of God. I wonder if our gospel is the same as the gospel of God. What are Jesus' first words? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Judgment is coming. Its timing and its scope, its object and its reason, its nature and its experience. But the purpose of this vision is given to us by the author most helpfully in verse 12. I love it when the author tells us why he's writing. It means the preacher's job is really very simple. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Christ Jesus. Facing death facing the wearisome combating of false teaching, facing the godless immorality, facing endless wicked anti-Christian propaganda. There will be rest from your labors. Keep the commandments and your faith in Jesus. Here is a call for endurance. Facing the temptation simply to nod off as a Christian. Oh, I've been going for 30 years now, and I can just enter into the armchair and fall asleep. Verse 13, your deeds will follow you. Keep going. Go on. Don't give up. Persevere. My grandfather was a very clear-headed Christian. And one summer, a lady who had just lost her husband and had been serving on a series of Christian camps came to spend some time resting in my grandparents' home. And one afternoon, she was sitting on a bench in the garden, and he went and sat next to her. And he said to her, it's been a tough year, hasn't it? And she said, do you know the Christian chorus that goes like this? Go on, go on, go on, go on. Go on, go on, go on. Go on, go on, go on, go on. Go on, go on, go on. It has 43 verses. (laughs) Judgment will come. Go on. We're not simply drifting aimlessly through this world with no beginning and no end. Go on. God sees, God hears, God knows. God will act. Go on. It It is as good as a fait accompli. It's as good as accomplished already. Go on. 
the announcement of God's judgment. Well, much more briefly, if the first three angels announce God's coming judgment, then angels four to six, the next three, speak of its execution. And in verses 14 to 20, the image is one of harvest, and those who are unfamiliar with pre-industrial harvest, a sickle is a scythe, a long-handled, two-handed agricultural implement with a blade at the end, which, when wielded skillfully, will cut the stalk of grain close to the ground. Has anybody ever used a sickle? We used to have a sickle on my parents' farm down in the west of, uh, of England. I remember trying to use it once. I mean, I'm not so old that we used it seriously. It was just hanging up in an old shed from a bygone age. Very hard to use. But here in verse 14, 15, 16, we have two sickles whose size is unlike that of any ever seen on the earth. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so the scythes are used for the harvesting of souls. Look at verse 14, and you will see the agent of God's judgment. I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who is the son of man in the book of Revelation? Jesus the great Sunday school answer, isn't it? doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is always Jesus. Who is the Son of Man in the book of Revelation? It is Jesus. Ah, says somebody, you at the cathedral in Kuala Lumpur, what you're peddling is Old Testament Christianity, all this talk of judgment. Really? Somebody once came up to me and said that at St. Helens, a business person. Oh, well, I don't really believe in the God of the Old Testament the way you do. I believe in the God of the New Testament, Jesus, the God of love and compassion. Jesus said, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus said, the Father has given authority to the Son to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Jesus said... The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawlessness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, more than anywhere else, beware the judgment of God. The storm is coming. The waters will rise. And the house not built solidly on the word and teaching of Jesus Christ will be swept away. When a man said that to me, in St. Helens, I replied to him as graciously as I could, if you are worshipping a so-called God of the, judge, uh, of the New Testament who knows no judgment, you are worshipping a figment of your imagination. Verse 14, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, the Lord Jesus, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And so the agent of judgment is Jesus, and Jesus wields his sickle <clears throat> to bring in the harvest of souls who have trusted him. 
In our part of the world, we plant our winter in wheat, winter wheat in September. We rest and watch through October to March. It's great being a farmer in our part of the world. We spray and fertilize it in April, and in July, we roll in with the combines for harvest. Jesus wields his sickle at the end of time. All this time, the grain is growing. It's October through to March. And as he gathers in his harvest, the deeds of his people are brought safely into his barn. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. So keep going, because your deeds will follow you as you seek to serve the Lord Jesus as a forgiven member of his kingdom. Keep going. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing goes unnoticed. Everything will be rewarded. Your deeds will follow you. Oh, you say, oh, well, I only put out the chairs on a Sunday for Sunday service. Your deeds will follow you. Oh, you say, well, I'm only, I'm only welcoming people. Oh, your deeds will follow you. Oh, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm only quietly living for Jesus in my office, seeking to make him known. Your deeds will follow you. Oh, oh I, I only just say a prayer. Your deeds will follow you. You endured patiently in Ephesus, Thyatira, Philadelphia. You did not soil your garments, but walked with me in white in Sardis. You stayed awake. You were faithful unto death in Smyrna. You held fast in Pergamum. Your deeds will follow you. Your deeds will follow you. Your deeds will follow you. Go on, go on, go on, go on. Go on, go on, go on. Here is a call for the patient endurance of the saints. Jesus wields his sickle at the end of time. He brings his harvest in, and insofar as you trust in him, you will be part of that glorious fruit of righteousness for the home where righteousness dwells. And the wicked, those who have invented God in their own image, the people of Babylon, Another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, a sixth, came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Here is the field of the globe and in it are growing people with fruits of righteousness who trust in Jesus and have been able to serve him and in it are growing those who reject Christ and his gospel and invent God in their own image. And judgment is real and judgment will come And judgment is inescapable. And God is holding back judgment as the grain grows, as the grain grows, as the grain grows. And God will wield his sickle on the day of harvest.
Well, we must draw to a close. You will notice in chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Here is the aftermath of God's judgment, the celebration of God's judgment. And I know that because you and I have friends and relatives and family members and loved ones whom we fear are tied up on the wrong side of this judgment, we find any thought of celebrating the judgment of God almost too hard to bear. But as you look at verses 3 and 4, it is a celebration of justice and truth, of holiness and righteousness. For when God wields his sickle, then truth and justice and righteousness and holiness will triumph. And we will rejoice. And so we are to go on, to keep going, to endure patiently in the face of virulent persecution, in the face of the temptation just to nod off, in the face of wickedness as we see it in the global church and in the face of false teaching. Judgment will fall. Let's pray. Just and true are your ways. We praise you that you are the fount of all justice and all truth, living God. Righteous are your deeds. We praise you that as we look at you, living Lord, we see perfect righteousness and holiness. We praise you that justice will be done, that truth will triumph, that your holiness and righteousness will prevail. And so we pray that you would help us to endure to the end by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.